Welcome back to another episode of the 90th percentile. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. And alongside me, as always, is my co-host, Matt Pajak of Loden Sports. Matt, we got another big episode today. We've got another guest coming in. Um, another Texan. This is back-to-back weeks with a Texan. We have uh, Matt Pierce, Coach Matt Pierce, South Texas Sliders, Kincaid Baseball. He's got a ton of experience across the game. And uh, as I was talking to Matt, pre-show a little bit he's telling me this is one of the smartest people he's spoken with in the baseball world so i take that in high regard matt welcome to the show how are you today man i'm doing good man appreciate you guys having me on i hope i can live up to those expectations (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) yeah uh pierce longtime friend um probably like Jeff said, one of the smartest dudes I've encountered in baseball, uh, knows the game inside and out, uh, every detail and then processes it just as fast. Um, I think faster than most people process the game, what's going on in real time. So, um, very progressive in thought, always, you know, challenging, I guess what, what the status quo is or what the opinion, the, the common opinion is. And, um, yeah, I guess, constantly asking why curiosity and, and, and pushing not just himself, but everyone around him, the players that he coaches forward. Uh, also a, a barbecue extraordinaire uh, knows how to smoke some meat for sure. Um, happy to have him on, you know, a true Texan. He's got the best beard in the league. Definitely the best yeah, beard yeah. that's ever graced this podcast. Um Pierce, you want to give us a little bit of background on yourself because uh, you you do a lot. You do a lot around the periphery of, of baseball. Yeah, I mean, so my journey started like everybody else's, right? Like I started off as a young kid playing the game and then um, worked my way up to, to being a high school player. Had some uh, a few small opportunities to play in college. Unfortunately, life happened for me, right? My mom died. Uh, breast cancer um and so just touching that right being october this sunday is actually a reunion of when she died but when i see players when i see players fight through stuff like that man it's really incredible because i i was just not able to do that um so i walked away from it for a little while i still had a lot of buddies that i met at college that played baseball Um, a few years after that i just felt like i really missed it and me and a couple or me and one other guy said we wanted to start coaching, right? And and believe it or not, I know this conversation is going to be about this, but we started off volunteering at a little league. And we walked out to the little league and said, man, we just want to, we just want to coach kids. Um, had a full-time job, didn't know what we were doing. And they they looked at us like we were crazy, right? No, no kids in the league, no little brothers, cousins, no affiliation. Put us with a coach and and, and we did it. And then the next year, I was actually running the league for the 13-year-old division, coaching two teams in it, still working full-time, not taking a dime for it, multiple practices, games, all that. Then a local coach in the Fort Bend area who coached a pretty good uh, 5A, we didn't have 6A at the time, 5A baseball team. I was coaching some kids that were going to be coming to this program, and he asked if I wanted to run his summer program for the Gold Glove, right, the kids before their high school season. So – Started doing that for a few years, met other people, jumped into the select ball scene, um, 
at the 13 and 14 year old division. Uh, quickly turned that into being a JV coach at Kincaid High School. Um, got into the private side, you know, and just and just kept climbing it. It was a varsity assistant coach, turned into a varsity head coach, turned the select baseball into a bigger organization with some, or joined a bigger organization. And now that's where, you know, I've, I've coached everything from 14U to the highest level of 17U. Uh, college advisor for a couple years of not even coaching in the game, but just helping kids navigate that process to, to back coaching the 17 U's and, and so a lot, man, just, just that, that's, that's basically how I got here. Just started off as a little league coach and, and just loved it and just kept, kept going with it. And looking back on 20 years later, it's pretty crazy to see, um, to see what it's been like through this whole ride, man. And you got a lot of different perspectives too, right? As a, as a coach and instructor, you know, someone kind of working your way into the game. Um, but also as a parent as well, you know, I think if you, if you take a look at your, uh, your Twitter, I think there's uh or X, right. It's X now. Um, yeah. there's definitely some stuff that I relate to there too, as a, as a, you know, dad of a couple you know, three kids, two boys that play, play baseball and, you know, sort of chasing it and, uh, et cetera. So, thought it was interesting kind of going through and, and the different perspectives and roles that we play kind of within this game and sort of how that all fits. And has it given you different perspective as a parent versus a coach, et cetera, on some of the oh, stuff? No doubt. In the journey? No doubt. I mean, I don't know if you read through my whole pin tweet, but I've left that there for a while now. And, um, you know, I went through this process. I, my dad will tell you, you know, Matt touched on it that, I just saw the game different than everybody else. Even as a kid, I was just an all right baseball player, but it's just something about baseball that I saw the movement of the game, the rules of the game. It just, I got obsessed with all of it. And so the intricacies of the game always came easy to me. The skill side was another story. And so when I got into coaching, you know, it turned into do what you were taught and what everybody was taught. And then it quickly turned into, you know, challenging myself of new ways, right? So I went through a long process. I, I, I just love hitting an infield play, right? So I went through a long process of that, of trying to get around everybody to learn everything I can about hitting and biomechanics and all the stuff. But then becoming a parent, man, like that really, that really intrigued me on another thing, right? Like my son, you know, didn't learn like others. He didn't, he didn't, it didn't come to him as fast as I saw it with other kids that I've constantly worked with. I saw that he loved baseball, that he had a passion for it, but, but it wasn't easy. And so, and this wasn't just in, in baseball, right? It was riding a bicycle. It was, it was school. It was, it was all the things. And then you start, you start trying to figure out how do you help your kid through life, right? Life skills, riding a bike, opening a jar, you know, just brushing your teeth, like, eating right like all these things that we take for granted and then you find out your kid uh one day you're getting told he's gt the next day you're getting told uh he may be autistic and then then you get told he's neither of those and then it's like all right well wh what are we chasing here and we find out that that he is dysgraphic later on in life and we find out the anxiety stuff and and so yeah learning a lot through him and watching his process and the exponential growth that he makes over over time periods without like drilling this down without making it hard on him without like pressing baseball on him um 
watching the growth that he makes on his own without instruction, like it's enlightening, right? Like, and who knows where he takes this, but you saw some swings I put on there today. Like, and I sent them to my dad where that was a year ago is like, dude, he, he's always had some flow, right? There's been some flow. There's been some movement patterns that I do like in the swing, but being a hitter is completely different. And now you're starting to see that those come out. So yeah, giving me, being a parent gave me a lot of perspective on how to coach them. You know, what's important, the biases we have in learning, the biases we have in how we process information. And then also kind of where we're going to go on this, of this culture of where, what it takes to enter what Matt keeps calling the exposure funnel, right? Like what it takes. So yeah, as a parent and a coach and seeing it all at every level, I mean, it's being a dad has helped. Yeah. And, and Matt's going to kill me here. Cause I'm like uh, going further in on this than I think we intended, but uh, it's important because I have, I have two sons and my oldest son, Matt is deaf. And we went through a period of time from when he was like two to like five years old, six years old, really trying to figure it out. And he's not completely deaf. Uh, he has what's called moderately severe hearing loss. Uh, so he hears really high highs and really low lows and all that mid range. He doesn't hear, which is a lot of vocal, a lot of the background noise. And um, we finally figured it out. He was young, you know, just barely made school by about seven days in our town. So he's one, one, one of the youngest kids in kindergarten. Um, that year when we finally got him into a, like, he would pass hearing tests. He passed three different hearing tests. That's the weird thing. And then we got him in like a school environment where they, they evaluated his hearing. And long story short, he had to get hearing aids, got that. And I sort of missed all the little things that he had missed for like five or six years. So he was involved in baseball, played sports until recently when he was 13. He's kind of gotten out of it and gotten into music and stuff like that, funny enough. But the differences between his experience in baseball versus my younger son, who's very tall, very athletic, picks up things very quickly. Uh, and just my experience as like a dad and like coaching them in different sports and teaching them things that it is, it, it, it changed my perspective on like where things are at. And, you know, it's kind of funny because now my oldest is 13 and he's probably like five, six, five, seven and, and pretty well built. And I'm like, this guy now like goes and hits baseball. Yeah. You know, we hit a couple of buckets and he crushes the ball. You know, but it was like he wasn't there at like 10, 11 and even 12. And I kind of wonder if some of it was because of his disability and some of his challenges that he had. But like physically now I see him kind of blossoming in some of these things. And it's just my experience with the two guys has been so different. And I'm just always interested, especially for someone that has high level coaching experience, really knows what he's talking about, as opposed to me, just a, a baseball writer and fan and fanatic, et cetera. Um, and how it's relatable, you know, and I think that it, it goes to show as we roll into this, um, how really early some guys are maybe eliminated when maybe they shouldn't necessarily be and just how competitive baseball is versus other sports at a really young level. I'll say like I coach basketball. My kids are involved in football. I uh, played hockey my whole life. And, you know, they definitely separate the good from the bad fairly early in, in baseball, but yeah. Matt, I'll let you allow us to get this conversation back on track, but I love that thread. So I wanted to, I wanted I to think that was a perfect lead up though, man. I mean, I think that's exactly what we're about to hit on. Hmm. No doubt. Um, and I think before we get into this whole conversation of the exposure funnel, this, this was a long conversation I had with 
Pierce last week. Um, you know, just attempting to put together a project that I'm working on that has continued to grow branches in all kinds of different directions. But um, the conversation with Pierce was enlightening in so many ways in talking about the lower level of the game, but he understands the exposure funnel all the way up. So I think that is important to acknowledge here is that in, and on the travel ball side, select ball side with South Texas sliders, like he coaches the 17 U guys, he's a high school coach. And then like, he's very involved in, his son's process and and he sees it all. And it's not just his son's process. It's also the Houston baseball initiative, which we'll get into a little bit later on touched on that last week with DC horrendous. So like every level of the game and then on the private side, working with professional hitters uh, in the off season, he's got plenty of experience with that. Right. So I think, you know, when, when you look about where Pierce is centrally located, Houston, uh, it's an epicenter of baseball, you know, players that have come through his program that he's coached. I mean, it's, Stanley Tucker, who was a guest a couple months back for us, uh, Jordan Westberg, um, Forrest Whitley. I mean, there's uh, there's a lot of really high level players that have been in dugouts with Matt Pierce, and um, I think that kind of is important context, you know, just for you know not just his point of view, but also like, hey, look, like you know, th- this guy's got some, you know, he may not be at you know, some power five division one school, but, um, you know, he's, he's been around it all. So, um, yeah, Pierce exposure funnel. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I sent you this last week. I, the, the original conversation that we had with Brian Sikowski a couple weeks ago, you listened to it. Uh, you thought it was fascinating and I got you rolling last week okay. and, um, you brought up this concept a couple of months ago on the phone that I kind of reignited last week of, the buckets of players that you see in youth baseball. And I think this is where I want to start the conversation. It's just, I thought you did a really good job of outlining like, Hey, here there's three buckets of players and these are kind of how they fit on a baseball field at this level of the talent funnel. We'll call it eight U to 12 U. It's probably more in like the 10 to 12 U um, side of things, but just kind of break down from your point of view, the three types of players um, that you see at that level. Yeah. So I, I agree. I think it does. I am more talking about the, the, you know, 10 to 10 to 12, 13 U player, right? Like th- I'm not talking about the player who this is his first time playing. I'm talking about guys who, who are interested in playing their families are, are involved in it and they want to be baseball players. Right. Because we could make a fourth bucket of the kid that, it's his first time playing and he has no, no idea of what's going on out there. Right. Like, <clears throat> but the three buckets are pretty simple. Right. And I'll just, I'll list them out at first, but they're athletic, they're physical, and then they're skilled. Right. So those are the three buckets. And so when I, when I watch youth baseball, whether that's at the little league field or the select field or just watching kids practice, I can identify a kid in each of the one bucket. Right. So, the athletic player is that kid who's just faster than everybody else. Um, he can, he's a good jumper, right? I mean, he jumps high, but he's rebounding fast off his feet. He can laterally move side to side. Um, and he's just fast, right? Like he can just cause havoc because he's fast. Um, then you have the physical player, right? Like this is the bigger kid at his age. Um, you know, he's going to bring more strength to the game. He can throw the ball harder uh, just on pure ability. 
when he hits the ball, there's authority behind it because there's weight behind it. Um, you know, he's just a more physical player. And then the third one is a skilled player. And when I say skilled, I don't necessarily mean polished, right? I mean, when I watch the kid throw, I can say, hey, man, like, his intent to throw the ball here is is right, right? Like, it may not be polished, but it's right. And how he's attempting to swing the bat right here, it's right. It's, it, again, not polished. There needs to be – it needs to tighten up. I got to realize he's only 10 or 11. But his his concept of the swinging the bat and how it needs to hit the ball, it's correct. How they – how they catch the ball, how they field the ball. Like they may not catch everyone, but you know, like they're moving to it the right way. They're, they're presenting the glove the right way. They're, they get their thumb underneath when it's, when it's called for, they're moving, they're, they're doing the skill correctly. So those, those are the three buckets. Um, you, you want me to expand on that or do you, do you got a question after that? No, so I, yeah, let me, let me kind of jump in here. And I think like the root of this whole conversation is like, well, why are there three buckets and why do we even care that there are three buckets? These kids are, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Well, the reason why we care is because there's such an emphasis on winning at every level of sports in the United States. Like, you know, I started going down a rabbit hole last week, like perfect game, uh, starts their national rankings for travel ball teams at nine U. Like they've got a top 40 nationally ranked travel ball teams for, for nine U and then 10 U and 11 U and all the way up. Right. So like there, there is this drive or incentive for coaches, parent coaches, select coaches at a very young age to go win games. There's tournaments, there's trophies to be won. There's, there's rings to be won, whatever. Um, so that's why we're even having this conversation because you you look at these buckets and you look at the implications for each one of these players. And, and this is kind of where, you know, we will take this conversation to the next level a little bit is like, okay, Pierce, if you're putting together a team that you need to go win a weekend tournament of 11 and 12 year olds, like which of these kids are you selecting? Why? And then which kids are getting passed over? <laughs> Yeah, and, and that, that's exactly where I think it needs to go next, right? And I think I think the first process of this is like what kind of coach – as a coach choosing this team, what's your philosophy and wins baseball games, right? Like where is your bias on, on what wins games? And we can look at one coach and say, you know, he believes in, in small ball. He believes in putting the ball in play and hitting back backside ground balls, and that's fine, right? But like, and if that guy wants to win at baseball – at the youth level, he's going to go build a team of fully athletic kids, right? He's going to go, he's going to have a tryout. He's going to pick the most athletic kids. And if you do that at 10, just the kids who are just faster than everybody else, man, you're going to, you're going to wreak havoc on a game, right? Like just teach everybody to bunt, teach everybody to just, just make contact and, and the bases are short and the game is fast. And like that fast kid can, can really create havoc. You see it all the time. As soon as one guy gets on base, man, get good luck. The pitcher's now rattled because the guy's running crazy. We're throwing balls. Kids get frustrated. And we and the word I use, and I use it in high school baseball too, is that team can spin the game out of control on the other team, right? If that other team can't play at that speed, they're just going to spin the game out of control. Then if you're another coach who, you know, like you dig the long ball and you dig heaters and you, and you, you dig power – uh, challenging the fence with your hitters and you don't care about stolen bases. Like you just want to slug. 
you can legitimately make a team on the on the smaller fields that they're just going to pummel you, right? Like they don't need to try to steal bases. They're going to hit double after double and homer after homer that you literally can't keep up. And then they're going to throw hard on the mound, whether it's a ball or strike, it doesn't matter. Kids are hacking at it because it's so fast because it's so close. Umpire strike zone is huge. So just throw gas and that, and that team's going to be competitive too. You can even be a mixed, right? Like, oh, I think it needs to be a balanced lineup. I need fast guys here, big guys here. Well, now go build a team that shows that, right? A more conventional team of saying, we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to have we're going to have the burners who can get on base and create havoc, and we're going to have the bombers who can who can bang you, right? Like, and and you're going to facilitate your team that way. So you can take you can take a combination of the athletic and the physical, right? Not a kid being in both buckets, but a kid being in one bucket. And have and have that, or you can take all athletic and all physical, and you can go win a ton of baseball at the youth level. It doesn't matter who's coaching them. Dad can coach them. An ex big leaguer can coach them. That team's going to dominate. But if you take a team of that skilled player who can't run fast yet, that hasn't hit the puberty of of being able to throw it hard and and hit it far, and he. He doesn't have the coordination to lead off and shuffle his feet and steal a base or the quickness to make the decision that, oh, that's a pass ball go or and he doesn't have he's just not there yet in his development. And you put 10 of those kids on a team, that team's going to lose by 30 runs every weekend, every weekend. And so when it comes to team construction at, at those levels, th that's what it is. If you're wanting to win, you got to identify the athletes and the physical and the physical players, and you're going to go win a lot. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, so I think this leads perfectly into the next part of this conversation, which is how do we get here, right? Because it, it hasn't always been this way. And the conversation that we had last week, I don't know, am I frozen right now? Yeah, but I can hear you. Good, can you hear me? Yep. All right, all right, we're good. I don't know, for some reason I got choppy there for a second. The conversation that we had last week 
centered around how we got here. And you and you talk about your little league experience as a kid and how it wildly differs from what kids are experiencing these days at the little league level, right? But how little league and then all stars snowballed into select ball, which is snowballed into the environment that we're in now. So I kind of want you to talk about that a little bit. And I, I had this conversation after we had our conversation with a guy who just got done playing pro ball uh, and he echoed the same experience, but he looked at it through a very different lens. Right. So he looked at like, Oh, when I had to play on those little league teams and I had to play with those kids who weren't very good, um, it wasn't a good experience for me because I wanted to play against players that could help me get better. And, and sure enough, you know, he was a guy that uh, went and played out of state for the first time at 11 U uh, to go find better competition. Right. So, I think all of that circles to like the root issue, which is like, that shouldn't have to happen. Okay. But like you've, you know, played little league growing up and you saw the evolution of like little league to select ball, travel ball and, and kind of all that. So I, I want you to talk about that because that's for sure. That's where we are. So I'm going to touch on, on the, on the pro player first. And I, and I said this to a parent the other day who echoed the same thing um, in another conversation I was in, like, he has to understand he probably only feels that way because that was his experience. Right. And that was the beginning of this. Like he, he knows nothing else. So why wouldn't he, why wouldn't he give his level of success to the experience that he had? And my argument back to those people would always be, but that doesn't mean if it was another way that you wouldn't have fallen the same experience. Like you're, you're assuming that because that was your experience and that's awesome, but that doesn't mean it had to be that way. And, and so that's where I come in and I can say for years, it was never that way. And we saw great players, right? Like, I mean, we saw great players make it to the major league level and become some of the best the game I've ever seen to this day. And they didn't do this model. So um, that would be my first response to him. But, but going back to your original question, you know, back, back, back when there was only little league, you know, you had a team draft and the, and the coaches draft the team and our and the dads were the coaching us. And, yeah, they, they played college ball, some of them played pro ball. But when you went through a normal draft, just like any draft today, the team's going to be comprised of four kids who, who are higher level, four kids who are medium level, and then your lower level kids, right? Like, and so for the same argument, it created competition to where each level can like level up, right? Because they ha they're they having to compete against better kids. <clears throat> and then we made all-stars, which I agree with all-stars. I got no problem with all-stars. I do think there should be an avenue where the upper level kids get to go play together. I think that's awesome. The model is awesome. But what happened was, in my opinion, in my view, was you would play all-stars and in Texas right at that time. I mean, it still is today, Little League. It was super competitive. Like, our all-star teams were good, man. They were going to Williamsport every year out of Texas. And so, you know, you take the all-star team, you practice them, you maybe play some pickup games because there wasn't tournaments and, and you played other select teams and you went to your district tournament. Well, like, your little league team could be really good. And if you if you lost in districts to the Northwest 45 All-Stars who had Beckett and, and all those guys on it and went to Williamsport twice, well, you're done. Like, you're done. We, you know, you challenge them twice, and, they, and then they just boat raced everybody on the way. You're now looking at the rest of the summer like, dang, man, like, I wish we could keep playing like them. And so what, what started to happen was 
the teams that would get eliminated from All-Stars early would start getting together and holding small events on, on the same parks, right? Like, and then, it, and then it festered into a, well, someone needs to be the organizer of this, right? Like so, someone needs to organize this. And so then we start organizing it. And then it's like, well, then it gets bigger. And then somebody else wants to make a team because their kid's not playing enough. And then like, now we have this team and that team. And now, now the dads think, well, like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the best team because I'm going to hire this guy to coach my team. And like, there were no organizations. Now we hire somebody with a name to coach the team. And then, and then you saw outside entities. And at this time it was USSA and triple crown saying, wait a minute, like there's a business model here. Like we don't need to run the teams. Let's just go make deals with facilities and then we'll, we'll rent out the fields and everybody will play. And then from there it just snowballed, right? Like it just snowballed. And, and the, where we're fighting today is slowly got there that, that it's now a status, right? Like, do you play rec ball or do you play select ball? And like rec ball has such a bad name to it for whatever reason, because people needed to identify you didn't make it to Williamsport. Well, that's okay. I'm going to play select. I, I got three select baseball tournaments. And so it just become a rat race of, of who can say I, I play select baseball. And then, you know, back then there was no majors, minors or majors, triple A, double A. Then it was like, well, now everybody wants to play select baseball. Select baseball isn't select baseball. So now let's make majors, triple A, double A. So kids can still play select baseball and we're going to call it triple A. But hey, man, at least it's not little league, right? It's like, I mean, like, where where are we going? Yeah, and I guess I guess my initial question for you on this, and I've I've had this conversation at the field in the last few weeks with parents who are uh your kids a year or two older than my son and like pretty good baseball players and just athletes in general, um, but multi-sport guys. How is a player, do you feel players impacted negatively if they do stay out of that funnel, stay out of that, that system and program of select ball or AAU or, you know, whatever the term is uh, there's been a few over the last 30 years. Right. Um, do you feel that that negatively impacts a player just not getting those at bats? Cause I know it's something that when Matt and I kind of get into this topic from time to time, um, sure. We, you know, ideally we'd, we'd love for um, people that will play multiple sports doing that sort of thing, but it's a matter of getting those at bats and getting those reps that maybe you can't get if you are playing multi-sports or whatever, and there's some catch up later on in life. So does it put a player behind the eight ball by not sort of kowtowing to this system? Do you feel, or do you think it's still, it's 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 just a lot of smoke. Yeah, and uh, I, I kind of want to like l- let me just piggyback that real quick, and it's like you have that question, and then like what happens to the kids that we talked about before in that third bucket who are skilled and aren't being selected for the select team, right? So like you've got the kids who aren't ready to commit year round of baseball, and then you've got the kids who are skilled and aren't one of those two other things. Like there's a a lot of players we're talking about, the majority of the players in the pool that we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. I mean, to touch the question, does, does it, does it hold the players back? I, I think, I think that, that, that that's where, where are you from, right? Like where do you live and what can you, what is your area providing at the current time? Right. So I can look at, at Houston, right. It's, it's huge. And there's pockets of good little league, right. There's pockets of it, but there's also areas that don't have it at all. And so mm-hmm. I feel for those kids because if you're in an area that's not offering a little league that 
and I'm not saying that it has to be good, but where people are just supporting it, right? Like, then no, you have to play select. Like, there's no option for you. You need to, you got to get some of that somewhere. So they're forced into that model. But then you look at areas of Houston, uh, Richmond, Rosenberg, Lamar Little League, where I'm at. I mean, it's a thriving Little League, right? Like, it's thriving. Pearland Little League is thriving. West U Little League is thriving. Post Oak Little League is thriving. And then you can look into the, some of the small towns in Texas, right? Sweeney and East Bernard, like they're thriving little leagues because the, the community base stays into it. The parents pour into it. It's awesome facilities and they're making the experience good. So it, it, if we're going to talk about the kids that have little league available to them, no, man, I don't think it hurts them at all. Like at all. I don't think it hurts them one bit. It's baseball. It's nine U baseball. It's 10 U baseball. Based on what I said earlier, the game is completely different when they all hit puberty and it's 90 foot bases, right? It's a, it's a different game. It's they're using different bats. They're using, they're on different fields. It's a different game. And, and going back to the three buckets to answer that you're on a major select team and you're the super athletic kid. And we're going to go to Stanley Tucker, right? Like Stanley Tucker was this kid. He was on a majors team before he came to us at 12 years old. And on that team, he was fast. They bunted him all the time. They sat there and bunted him. He ran fast and, and like av average arm, right? Like, but his parents luckily saw like, wait a minute, dude, like this is not, if we stay on this path of being this player and exposing the game, we're not going to, we're not going to progress into this thing. So that's when he came to us at 13. And so, you know, and we promoted, all right, we got it. This leads into another part of it. We got to present another skill. We got to get Stanley Tucker, who's in a athletic bucket. We got to get him in another bucket. And that bucket is going to be skill, right? Like, let's let's go there first and start developing a second bucket. You know, we can look at another player from Lamar Little League, also Wesley Fajon, and he had a great career at Texas State, really big right-handed swinger. You go look at him at 12, and he was like, the tall, overweight, chunky kid who could hit the ball out of the park every time. If he would have stayed on that path and, and just like, oh, well, I'm just going to do this. You know, he, he's out of baseball in six months or in, in, in three or four years. But instead, we get him at 13. It's like, hey, man, like, we got to get faster. We got to improve the other buckets. We got we to gotta focus on these things. And so those kids did Little League, right? Like Jackson Williams, all these kids we played, they did Little League. And they had they had successful careers. You know, Matt mentioned some guys earlier, like Kevin Copps, right? Like he played Little League and he didn't enter the select model till 13 years old. He he didn't commit to Arkansas till his senior year. It was as a walk-on. And he goes out to have the greatest college baseball se season of all time, arguably. Like, and now he's pitching triple A at 96 miles an hour. Like, like, come on, man. Like. And they followed that path and let life happen. So no, I don't. I don't think it. I don't think it affects long term. It's great to hear. If anything, yeah. I think it negatively affects it, right? Because because if if there's like this gatekeeper that you don't fit in these two buckets, there's no place for you in select baseball. Too many parents. At, of a nine and 10 and 11 year old make the decision for their kid. Well, the culture says, since my son's a rec ball player and not a 13 U player, we need to go do something else. We need to quit investing in this. 
no matter how much fun my kid is having, no matter how much he loves it, we're going to convince him that this isn't it. And we're going to go try something else, whether that's art or band or soccer or football, they're going to go try something else because the culture has told that kid, if you can't do it at 12 at AAA, you can't play high school baseball. And when I say that that's said on community forums, <laughs> that, that is said. If you're not a 12-year AAA player, you're not going to play varsity. Like, what? <laughs> that's just not true. So in my opinion, it negatively affects a larger crowd than it positively affects the kids who are getting 1,000 at-bats. Well, this is a completely different conversation, but I do think it, it fits right here. It, and, and that's kind of what our society has evolved into as a result of like the advancements in technology. Right. I remember being a kid and waking up every morning and going out and picking up the newspaper so I could check the box score of the Red Sox game from the previous night. And I remember being a little bit bummed out if they were playing on the West coast because the score wasn't reported in the paper. So I wouldn't find out how the Red Sox did until I got home from school. Right. And now it's like you have the, push notifications on your phone. So it's like you roll over at two o'clock in the morning and it's like, oh, there's there's the final score. By the time you wake up, you don't even remember whatever and it doesn't matter, right? So like that's what social media has kind of done. It's like shortened all of our attention spans. It's made us all very impatient because we can have whatever we want whenever we want, right? So translate that to the parent watching their kid play baseball and seeing that their kid isn't as good as someone else on the field. They're impatient, right? Oh, this isn't for them, right? So I think that's kind of it. Baseball is in a really tough spot just in the nature of the game because it requires patience. Right? You go to a baseball game, you're not guaranteed anything. You go to a baseball game, you could see six home runs. You go to a baseball game, you could see six hits. You know what I mean? Like, and you have to sit there and you have to wait for it. Now they've made changes to the to the game this year where there's you know pitch timer and and it moves the game along. And I think that's going to do wonders for the game in the long run because I think it's going to keep more people, you know, in. I guess, spectating involved uh, in tune to the game. But I think all of that is really just to like back up that point that Pierce is saying where it's like, you've got a really impatient group of parents now at the, in youth sports and baseball is, you can make the argument, the sport that requires the most skill to be somewhat competent on a field right? There's so many different things that you have to be able to do. It's not just like, Hey, this kid throws well. It's like, you got to be able to throw, you gotta be able to catch, you gotta be able to fill the ground ball. You gotta be able to catch a pop-up. Like you gotta be able to hit. There's, there's so many different things where if you, if you're deficient at one of those things, it kind of like throws the bus off the road. Right. So you have that. And then, and then you couple that with, and, and I saw, you know, some tweets about this this past week and a whole conversation in regards to, you know, kids aren't playing outside anymore. They're not going and playing in the neighborhood because there's, there's such an element of like overprotection these days that didn't exist when I was growing up, when Jeff was growing up, when you were growing up. Um, and that I think is also, you know, with how much information is available to us and how much we're taking in through social media and the news and all that, like people are afraid to send their kid out to the neighborhood to play with the other kids. Couple that with the advancements in technology and video games and all that, that's an alternative to playing with the kids in the neighborhood. And now you've got the overprotective parent who doesn't send their kid out into the neighborhood to play with the kids, who's now watching their kid fail at a really difficult sport at a young age. And it's easy to pull the plug and protect them from failure. Right. So sure. a lot of different things going on there 
that are playing against the sport of baseball in terms of retaining kids at the very earliest level of this exposure funnel. Yeah, agree. I mean, I, I, I you know, you, you hit the nail on the head about it protecting your kids, right? I mean, letting them go outside, it's, 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 it's not easy because of how much we see bad happens now. And it doesn't mean that that bad wasn't happening before, but we definitely see it now, right? I get an Amber alert on my phone probably once a day that we never got. So no, that, that, that's interesting. I agree. Yeah. It's, it's just at the forefront of everybody's minds. And I do want to talk a little bit before we move into Houston baseball initiative and some skill development stuff, because this has been a really good conversation, but just touch on if you're willing to share um, you in our conversation last week, you talked a little bit about uh, select baseball as a status um, and, you know, kids wearing their select baseball gear to school and, as opposed to the kid that's not playing select baseball. Can you just talk about that a little bit? Because I do think that that psychologically, you know, impacts kids and it's a little bit of the haves and the have nots um, when, when it comes to select baseball. Yeah, if you don't mind, I, <clears throat> there's one place I kind of want to go before this because it ties into what y'all talked in last week about um, the exposure funnel, right? Like, so when y'all had that conversation about the exposure funnel, you made the comments and where I think that the, the genesis of this lied in that, in, that, in that conversation was that when you start getting identified at 12 by USA Baseball and perfect game at their – PG Fest or whatever these high-end events are, those kids get to carry that with them through their high school careers, right? Like, and y'all took it into the draft, right? All the way into the draft and, and whatnot. Like, there's another group of those same kids that were in that 12U thing that get that get to take that just into their high school program, right? Like that high school coach is aware of what that kid did at 12. And so He's just, he's walking into his high school program ahead of everybody else, right? Because if he did it there, he's got to do it for us. And so that kid's going to be given the opportunities much sooner, you know, and what drove my thoughts after listening to this and what I called you on, Maddie, and where the three buckets came in, when you look at 12U national teams, you know, they, they hold the NIT or they hold their events and they're I, we've identified what one bucket you fit in of each one of those, right? Like we can put every kid in one bucket. When you start identifying national teams, you're now identifying which kids fit in two buckets, right? Like now it's a two bucket kid. And that two bucket kid is usually going to be an athletic kid with, with the skill, right? That kid exists or the big kid with the skill and that kid exists. And those were the kids y'all were speaking of, right? Like, that kid is the above and beyond at his age because he has he has the tools and he has a skill before anybody else. And when we weed out, if you're if you're just in one bucket, right? Like that kid can continue to play and get those at bats that you were talking about at 12, 13, 14, and they have a better opportunity because they're playing at a, at a they continue to play. They have a better and practice better opportunity to achieve skill, right? Like. The skill dependency is dependent on them. They have a direct impact on if they can achieve skill. And if you're the physical kid who didn't make the NIT team, you get told why. And you have a direct impact on if you can develop skill. Go get a coach. Go take lessons. Go work out. Go do those things. 
the kid who gets hosed in this whole deal is the skilled kid. Like, one, he's pushed out. If he's not pushed out and he keeps playing, he has no bearing on his athletic and physical development until his maturation process says he's capable, right? Like, and we have to wait on that. I can't go, I know we can go train and we can run, we can do running things and we can do those things, but you're still, you're still at the, at the mercy of how fast can that kid's uh, myelin, right, talent code, how fast can he develop the myelin of it? And they're all different, right? And so, you know, the kids who even get identified in different things and they get those NIT teams, you know, and then all the way to the national side, those are two bucket players and they were able to develop the skill bucket, which is the one you can develop the most. You talked about your kid, right? Like your older one, he is now reaching the physical side that you, you didn't see before, right? Like, so as an industry, I'm trying to figure out how do we keep that kid playing? Like, how do we keep him interested? How do we keep the skilled kid to continue to just play? It doesn't need to be a thousand at bats. It doesn't need to be 500 at bats. It just needs to be, does he want to go do it? Does he want to go play catch when dad wants to play catch? Does he want to go hit? Does he, you know, we can talk about the bad in video games. Does he play MLB the show, right? Like, can you continue to fester a love for it and an understanding that when the other two buckets happen for him and he gains weight and he gains coordination and proprioception and all the things we know that it takes to be a good athlete, when those things come to him at a later time in life, are we ready to start putting him in multiple buckets now? And I think we just, we just take that away from the kids so soon, you know, and, and the video game thing is a big component to me because my son's catching, right? Our, our team didn't have a catcher in the first game, strike three pass ball. And I, when I tell you, he ran to the backstop and slid on his shin guards and got up and threw the ball to first base. My wife was like, how did he know to do that? I said, well, MLB the show, man, because they do it. Like he sees it on TV and MLB the show. He knew that rule because he plays the game, right? Like, and yeah. so let them play. Let them can like you can get a thousand at bats versus versus fifty five mile an hour pitching, or you can play MLB the show and learn the intricacies of the game. Like, it's all important here, but we just force kids out too soon, and I think that goes to the wearing the gear, right? Like, I think that that fits into that. My son's in sixth grade, so that's the start of junior high. And my wife's a principal at an elementary school. And you as a dad know this, like transition to junior high is tough, man. Like kids are mean. Like, yeah. oh, that's when the ego starts to come out. That's when yeah. the pecking order starts to kind of start to happen. And my son plays Little League and we all know the connotation on it. And yesterday was game day. And Lane said, I'm wearing my Orioles jersey to school. And I could have been the parent say, you know what, dude, I know there's kids at that school who wear big time select uniforms. And y'all know the organizations. I don't need to name them, but they wear big time organization uniforms. If he wears his Orioles jersey to school, he they're going to see that and they're going to automatically make that assumption about him. So I had a choice, right? Like, nah, Lane, we're not going to do that. Or I had a choice to say, you know what, bro, we're going to own it. We're going to own it. And we're just going to keep doing this. And if we get to a point that, Matt, we've talked about this ad nauseum, that when it's all said and done, when it's all smoke and mirrors, or when all the smoke is settled, let's see where kids are at. And 
I don't know if he's going to be there. I don't know. And I don't care really. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, mm. it doesn't justify my love for my son. Right. Like I don't care. He's having a positive experience, but I really do hope for him because he loves it. That when we're looking at this thing at 17 years old, it's like, we can come back and have this conversation again and say, worked, man. We played I nine without the scoreboard. We played the little league that was bad. We moved over to another little league that was a little bit more competitive and we saw growth by growth by growth. And, you know, as long as we hit every benchmark, I, I think we're fine. I think our benchmarks are too high. My benchmark is can he play kid pitch? Can he play kid pitch by 12, right? Can we can we legitimately compete in kid pitch by 12? My son's doing that. Is it at the majors level? No, but he's legitimately playing kid pitch at 12. He doesn't bail out of the box anymore. He's in there to hit. He's in there to, to make the team happen. The next benchmark, make your high school team, man. Like, let's just make a freshman baseball team. And I truly believe that if you make a freshman baseball team in this area, college baseball is now in your hands. It's in your hands. Can you, we'll move into this, develop and focus and take care of all the things you need to and college baseball is in your hands. Yeah, and and I want to go back for a second and just support with some evidence here. Um, what Pierce was saying on the you know talent identification and selection side for twelve U player, right? So he's talking about the buckets, and he's talking about how national team players are usually either physical and skilled or athletic and skilled. Um, I've got an anonymous quote here from someone who is intimate with the youth national team identification process uh, who said at the 12 U level, you can get the biggest kid and go win. Other countries don't have the nutrition or trainers to compete. Um, I think that fully supports the fact that this past year's 2023 USA baseball 12 U national team average height was five foot over five foot four, 126 pounds. Uh, compare that to the average 12 year old male measuring in at um, four foot 10, 98 pounds. So it's you know six inches taller and roughly 30 pounds heavier than the average 12U male uh, was the roster composition for the 12U national team this year. So um, yeah, there's there's evidence out there that, yeah, that's, that's exactly what they're looking for. Um, so it's not just, you know, Pierce observing and, and making subjective observations. There's, it's very real. Um, and in, I've seen it happen. I, I've seen it happen with the player, right? Like we, you named Jordan Westford, right? Like no one knew who that kid was in twelve. He's playing little league, and he was playing little league in New Braunfels, Texas, right? Like pe people didn't know that guy. I mean, people didn't know that guy when we were in Atlanta, seventeen U WWBA. Even though we tried to tell him about him, no, nobody knew that guy. And he runs out of there with like, no lie, I haven't seen it since. Like twenty twenty D one offers. Goes to Mississippi State, has a career, guys in the big leagues, right? And no one knew him at 12. Nobody, except New Braunfels. And he played for the New Braunfels Unicorns in high school. I mean, like, but by 17, that kid, and go to your thing, he played three sports, football, basketball, baseball, like, and there he is on TV playing in the infield with the Baltimore Orioles. Like, so, you're right, man. I mean, it's it's there. Yeah. There's there's a ton of proof out there, uh, and there's scientific evidence that performance at a young age doesn't dictate performance at a senior age by any means. 
but I do want to move on here uh, before we wrap up. And I just want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the Houston Baseball Initiative, because I know that there's a lot of concepts. Uh, and, and this is something that we talked about last week with D.C. Houston Baseball Initiative. But we didn't really get into the skill development side of things. And I know there's a lot of concepts that you've baked into that with a younger group of athletes that you've been doing for a long time with high school players and any anybody that you coach, really. Um, and I know a lot of it's founded in, in talent code. So I just want want you to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the high level concepts that you bake into your average practice plan when you're working with these kids. Um, and then maybe some of the things that you observed over the course of a calendar year, just in terms of their experience and their skill development versus the skill development of, you know, the average kid who's not, I guess, uh, involved in the program. Yeah, man, you know, HBI was, was DC's, DC's baby, right? Like, and, and I always had good ideas of how, how it could work, but being where I was in select baseball and my demographics, it was hard for me to, to find a group of kids and parents who would buy into this. And DC found that, right? Like he found that group of 11 new kids and parents who said, Hey, we'll listen to this. And basically the gist of it was a calendar system that said, we're going to have months where we train, we're going to practice three times a week. And that's going to transition to months where we, we train and play and and it's going to be a, a mixture of that then there's going to be a month or so where it's like heavy play right heavy play we're going to chase tournaments all that nine yards and then it's quickly going to turn back into we're going to just train right and then back into the fall model of train and play a weekend double header so that was kind of like the thought process there is to get people off this concept that you needed to you need to play in Texas, dude, you can literally start playing tournaments in January and play them through November, right? And it's being done. It's, it's go look at perfect game and look how many games a 12-year-old can play in Texas. It's 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 out of control. Um, but then it was like, all right, well, what do we do during those practice times, right? What do we do? Like, I don't believe in the um, the way I we we know practice, right? I don't believe in the let's put them on a line and play catch and then put one kid at each position and, 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 and teach them in and out at 12 years old, even though they're not going to take in and out until they're 17 years old on a varsity baseball team. Like with one coach hitting fungo, it, it was more of um, making it exciting, right? Like, you know, team catch, right? Like baseball isn't played with two guys playing catch. It's played with four guys, five guys playing catch. So we changed the way we warm up. We did, we call them box drills and our kids are just, they're just accustomed to it. We call them box drills, four guys get in a square and they start playing catch. We purposely drop the ball, recover, throw left. We get it going. We stop dropping the ball. We drop the ball and go the other way. And we're just trying to build, you know, like how good can you get at your ball handling skills, right? Like let, let's get good at controlling the baseball, even when we drop it. And then turning that into other catch play games, you know, where, you know, we have a firing squad of six guys and one guy running down the line and, and he throws a ball at him and he throws it back, throws the ball and throws it back. And we just learn to play catch while running. Um, we have another one like wide receivers in football where they stand in the middle and and it's a, a build a clock around him and shoot and they throw a ball at him. He's got to catch it and throw it back, turn to the next guy catch, and just just go, go, go. And when we first started that, man, it was ugly, right? Like we thought kids were going to get hit in the face like. It, it, it wasn't easy, but 
the more they they played that right the better they got at it and learning how to play this game on a fly and learning how to play this game with movement and flow and then we turn that into you know ground ball training right like we're not going to hit ground balls we're going to put cones out there work on lanes and we put a net at first base and we didn't coach each rep it was go 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 as fast as we can and just throwing cues at them as they go if we started to see that there's constant mistakes stop explain tell them what we're looking for get back in it and it was just go 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 and we just kept progressing that into more advanced drills if you will right like making it harder now putting the first baseman over there and um you know then we started working into the more intricate things like one step transfers and chunking that up and having six guys across the infield just walking and then throwing and just walking and throwing and just progressing that into a ground ball and then there was a, a lot of, uh, the, you know, that was a couple, two of the practices a week. And then the third practice would be making, making games that revolved around baseball. That wasn't necessarily baseball. And soccer, we know that is futsal, right? Like they all learn how to play futsal before they play soccer. And so how do we create games like that, that are interesting, that, that, we don't have to necessarily teach the kids, but they can just learn at the baseball field, the playground. And so bucket ball was one of those games. And, and bucket ball was, there's four teams of four, you know, two on defense, one hitting 25 balls in the bucket. First inning, you hit the ball and you're just running, man. You're just circling those bases. And the defense has to get the ball into third base, touch third, touch second, touch first. And however many bases that runner got, and before the infield could do that, that's how many points you got. And the team kept hitting until all 25 balls were out of the bucket. So if you fouled one off, you lost that ball. If you missed one, you lost that ball. So you got 25 balls. And in the second inning, we would change the game, right? Now the defense has to go 2-3-1. In the next inning, the defense has to go 1-2-3. And we constantly changed where. So they always knew, you know, how to throw the balls to different bases based on what the coach was. And then there was no instructions. We never gave them cheat codes. We never told, like, we just said, this is, this is what it is. And you saw, you started to see them communicate who has the base while somebody else goes and covers another base and communicating it in the field. And it's like, they're not playing baseball, but they are playing baseball. Right. And then, then you, once they understand that concept, it's like, all right, well now you got to play with, you got to play with five outfielders and three infielders. And you're like, all right, three infielders, five outfielders, that's going to be easy. And the first innings three, two, one. So they would put a guy at shortstop, second base, and first base. But then they'd hit the ball to second base, and they'd have to wait for the shortstop to get to third to cover third, and and wait. And the guy's running right. So like, and then it's, the guy's trying to throw it to the guy on the run. It's a bad throw. And it's chaos. And we made sure to never coach them through those areas. We wanted them to figure out there's a better way, right? And so sure enough, they'd figure out. Well, first base is the last base I have to throw to. Why do I have a guy playing first base? So then they would say, all right, put a guy at second, short, and third, take the right fielder. The only rule was you only had to have you could only have three in the dirt. So take the right fielder and cheat him up. That way, if one is hit through there, he can get it before it gets too far. And it was like awesome to see them process ways to beat the games that we threw at them. And anytime they would beat the game and we say, All right, man, they got it we threw another rule on them, right? Like threw another crazy, crazy rule on them of how to, uh, of what they can't do. 
And what you saw was, man, the kids just learned to compete. They had fun with it. The scores were like 100 to 120. And they were they was fast, right? They were running fast. And and you got the big kids could be beneficial. The big kids who could run could be beneficial. And they wanted to play. But I mean, they asked it, it'd be a skill day. Hey, man, can we play bucket ball? And, it, you know, we did that for three months in our training session. So we were getting game like that action, but we weren't playing with the scoreboards for trophies. And you start to teach them, you know, you can play the game this way, right? Like baseball's this way, right? And and we've known it as you put nine guys in nine positions and now we got rules where you can't shift. But that's basically what the big leagues did. They started using the field as a playground to get smart with it versus sticking nine guys in nine positions. And you saw their IQ go up, the speed of which they play went up. We developed skill. And now that team's 13 years old, man, and they're pretty freaking good, right? Like, they're pretty freaking good. And there were guys on that team that when they first came, it's like, dude, they're going to get hit in the nose and in, in, in box drills, or they're going to do the clock drill and turn their head and get hit in the face. And, like, we're going to piss some parents off. And, no, man, like, they're, get, they're, they're playing. They're playing. Well, yeah. Uh, appreciate the masterclass and a constraints-based approach. Uh, yeah. I believe is the the scientific term there. Uh, just fascinating to listen to on so many levels, and I hope that you know everyone who listens to this listens to that particular part with a notepad because um, so many great nuggets in there. Uh, what was I going to say? I had something, and it's going to come back to me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, do you think, but while it comes back to me, I'm going to ask you this question. Do you think that this model is realistic and more scalable in the current environment? Oh, before we do that, what I was going to say is I've seen a lot of youth baseball recently and kids are very robotic, right? So like, you know, I play shortstop, so I do this. I play second base, so I do this. There isn't a whole lot of like creativity or, you know, thought that goes into like, okay, how can I look at this a different way? They're so drilled to be this or so drilled to be that. They're not looking at it through the way that you're basically developing on the baseball field with these younger kids, which is just like, hey, you go figure it out for yourself. I'm not going to say anything. And I think that's probably not just a baseball problem. I think it's mm -hmm. probably a problem in all youth sports in America is, I guess, overcoaching. Because yeah. overcoaching yeah. creates rigidity. Rigidity stifles creativity. When you stifle creativity, then you don't have – what you see at the, the highest level of the game or the – or the guys who found a way to, I guess, get some of that creativity into their game and, and start to think more instinctually as opposed to like by the book on how they go about doing things. And you see it at the highest level of every sport where they do things that it's mm -hmm. like, how do they think to do that? Right. Like the Jeter yeah. cut play. Uh, you can make the argument the Austin Riley cut play in this postseason was very similar. That Carlos Correa play where he, he instinctually ran, uh, behind the ball that got through the third baseman, he threw it home. Like those are the types of plays that the kids that you're coaching have a better shot to instinctually be able to make at some point, as opposed to most kids in America that you go watch play. And it's like, they, they don't have those instincts. They're just so rigid. Like this isn't, I don't know what to do here. So nothing. Right. Yeah. I think it's like, it's like embracing the chaos, right? It's like these, it's like, 
I feel like we were much more like Bane. We were like in, we were like raised in the chaos. Like we played in the backyard. We tried things out. We did stuff with our friends that we wouldn't have done in practice. We maybe played positions or did different roles that we wouldn't have done in practice in structured play. Right. And it seemed like I was that that's maybe the best that last bit in terms of how, you know, uh, HBI set up and some of the stuff that you guys are doing might have been like one of the best moments of this podcast over two seasons, frankly. And I think it was because like, that's the aha moment was for me is it's like within that chaos is how players become creative, start to think for themselves and become instinctual, right? That's part of it. Is it, it's building instincts. So that's, uh, that was tremendous. And yeah, Matt, that was, a, that was a great point. I think it is, uh, yeah. it's true. These guys that they, they can't use chaos or they, it's why they, they crack under pressure all no, I, I and I appreciate that, and that's kind of been my belief system this whole time, right? I want to touch on three things that y'all hit on there, right? Like when I was first varsity coach at Kincaid High School, the first time I was also in charge of our middle school program, seventh and eighth, right? So I got like fifty kids out there that I had to practice with some other coaches um, for middle school baseball. Well, we'd have a varsity game against a big opponent on a Tuesday night. The last thing I wanted to do at three o'clock before BP was was practice seventh graders and eighth graders, right? Like, and when, and, and it's a large group of kids and they have to take a PE credit. So some of them are like serious about baseball and some of them are just trying to get their PE credit and that's fine. It was fun. But on those days that I had a game and I was a you know, home game coach, we played tennis baseball. Right. And I remember we would make second base home. Uh, you had to hit it over the net to be a home run. Um, we used a fungo, Right. And you couldn't touch bases to get out. You had to peg them. Right. That that was the rules. And it was like it was like 20 on 20, 15 on 15. Right. I mean, absolute chaos. And it used to drive our head coach mad. Right. Like, We're not making these kids better. And I was like, hey, man, why don't you sit down and watch this for a second. Right. So we got we got kids who who aren't good at the sport that aren't going to try to do this long term. They know that they're having a blast. Right. Like this is fun. It's active. It's not drills to them. You know, they can hit the tennis ball into the net and have fun. So that kid was having fun. Then you have, like, them trying to drive ball. So we were creating aggressiveness, right? And then they're running fast because they don't want to get pegged, right? They're trying to score runs. But the best part was, since it's pegs, as soon as that guy would get the ball to go to peg him, you would see, like, 15 of his teammates running to get behind him because they know that the chances of the peg actually hitting him right here are low, right? And so if this is a bad throw, we need people over there so we can get it and try to peg him fast, right? And so it's like, we didn't have to tell him to go back up. They just did it, right? And it just became like, um, we can play this way, right? Like this, when we say, why aren't you backing up first? The same mistake can happen, right? Like, why were you so, why were you so excited to back up in tennis baseball? But in, in the baseball game, tonight at 17 varsity level, my right fielder is going to stay put when we hit a ground ball, slow roller to third, and we throw it up the line and we're late. It's like, why didn't y'all do it there, but not here, right? Like, so, you know, that was kind of the point of it. And then, you know, you made the comment, kids today don't do what we did. We played in the backyard, right? And man, like that really hits home to me because I can get onto Twitter and I can see I can see a ton of coaches sit there and make that comment about how today's generation is lazy 
and how they play video games and they don't go out and play and they got all these opinions about these kids right and about how it was different when we were kids and we did this and hey man we were those guys too right we were those guys too that heard our dad say i walked up the hill both both ways in the snow to school right like we heard that we got tired of hearing it didn't make us it didn't make me want to walk to school when he said that right like and now we become the old man on social media who want to sub post these kids and say Oh, we played in the backyard and y'all don't do that. Well, let's go back to what Matt said earlier in here. We don't do that, one, because we live in neighborhoods that don't have those fields anymore. Number two, I turn on the TV and a kid gets hit by a car on his bicycle every single day. Number three, I get an Amber Alert once a day about a kid getting kidnapped. Number four, I mean, I can go down the list of all the negative things that go through my mind the moment my son walks out that door, right? Well, we have the cars, we have the time, we have the ability, we know where the open park is. Instead of like complaining about it on these kids and complaining about the culture, why don't you go create HBI in your neighborhood? Like, why don't you go create a system where you can actually coach the kids? Like, or you can yell at the clouds and talk about back in my day, we played street ball till the lights came on and we had to go home. Hey man, put them in the car, go to the local field, and find 12 kids to do it. My son's 12. He's never, he's about to be 12. He's never wanted to do this, right? Like he, Lane, you want to play baseball this spring? Absolutely. Lane, you want to go practice? Not really. All right, cool. Well, now he wants to. So what have I done? I put on my Facebook, I put on social media. I emailed a bunch of parents that I knew that used to play little league with them. Hey man, this winter, starting November 1st, I'm gonna take 15 kids between the ages of 10 to 12. I don't care if you're a little leaguer, double A, triple A majors, I don't care, but we're gonna go to Lamar two times a week, November to January. It's gonna be, all I want you to do is pay the cover. I'm not even gonna get paid on this, but I am gonna hire another coach. We're gonna pay him a little bit and maybe a field rental, looking at maybe a couple hundred bucks and we're gonna go three times, two, two three times a week for three months, November, December, January. Man, when I tell you I put that up and I got 20 responses of I'm in, I'm in, in, a, in one day, one day. And so, you know, that model's out there. Like people want it, people will do it. You just, they gotta, they gotta feel like you're not doing a money grab on them, though, right? They gotta need, feel like we need, real. We need a camera crew on that, hard knock style. And then it needs <laughs> to be on Netflix. Yeah. And, and but yeah. like, seriously, I mean, I mean, it's funny to think about, but like, if that was on like Netflix or is featured on like a, a YouTube channel that, that could get a lot of viewership and people could watch, Hey, like, this is what happens when you just go do it and you do it in a non non-structured way. And, and you do it in a way where these kids are encouraged to have fun. And you are basically creating that environment that we used to have in the backyard and a little bit more of a structured environment, but it's still free play. It's just organized no free, free play. play, right? That's right. Like that's what people need to see because you're going to go do that. And just like you had the experience with the HBI, those kids are going to get better and you're going to see it before your eyes week over week. And then, you know, you're just, you know, you and the, and the parents and the players that have that experience will have that experience, but it's, it's going to be a select view, which is really unfortunate, I guess, for the masses because there's 50 States in this country and, countless communities that could use 
that type of opportunity. Yeah, and it, and it's doable, right? And the responses have come from every level. I have a I have an eleven year old who who's like your son and and you know rec ball level. And I've had majors kids say they want to do this, and they saw it. They saw that rec kids were invited. And I had major, there's majors levels kids saying, coach, I want to do this. And so, no, I do think people want it, but the kicker is, is coaches got a coach now, right? Like coaches got a coach, so many coaches. And you, you hinted this on your podcast that there's a lot of kids making decisions on 12 year olds that don't need to be making decisions on 12 year olds. Right. So there's a bunch of people out there winning 11 U tournaments with athletic kids and 11 U tournaments with physical kids that if you put this model in front of them and said, go do this, it's like, wait a minute, man, it's much easier. It's much easier to round third base and do this at third base and then tell everybody how good I am because I got trophies on my wall, right? Like, that's easier. It's harder to do what HBI did and take a group of 11-year-olds who are Little League kids and now look at a ranking, come out and say that they're a top 10 ranked team in Texas at 13U. Like, and they were good, man. Like, I'm not trying to say these kids weren't good, but it was fun. One last thing that you touched on, Matt, I know you'll appreciate this. I wrote it down, the word both of y'all used, creativity, right? Like, I use that word a lot. Uh, Matt, I know you're a creative person. I know you draw the shoes. I, I've seen a lot of your stuff. It's really awesome. Well, I raised one of those, too. My daughter got an art desk. She has every piece of art equipment you can want, and that's what she wants to do, and she loves it. And it started at a young age, and she would bring me a picture. I wish I had one in here um a picture and said dad look what i drew or look what i colored and the shading was wrong it was in different directions it was outside the lines i mean and my response was like dude that's awesome that's so beautiful I, we're hanging that up right like and we would legitimately put it in a frame and put it somewhere in our house right and the next one would come and the next one would come and now she's eight and it's better right it's like dang dude you drew that like that's incredible and I think it's crazy that I would never look at my daughter when she when she colored that picture, different lines, different ways, you know, the coloring is all over the place, outside the lines. I never looked, looked at her and said, dude, that's shading. That's just not it, man. Like that shading, you got to get better at that. Like, let's go watch a YouTube video and and learn how to shade because they're out there, right? Like, let's learn how to shade better. That that, you know, we got to get better in that. It's not acceptable in this house, right? Like, and we never would think to do that. And she learned it. I just kept telling her good job. And next thing I know, I walk into her room and she has a video on from YouTube teaching her how to shade. And she's like shading the thing because I didn't tell her to do that. I just kept telling her good job, good job, good job. And as she got further along, she figured out how to use technology and oh, let's shade better. Or oh, let's draw it this way and learning techniques through internet that I don't know anything about art. I can't teach her. But when it comes to baseball, right? We want a structured practice. We want to teach them the three-point stance of fielding a ground ball. We want to yell at them if the back elbow should go up or down. We want to tell them to step straight. We want to tell them to swing up or down. We want to throw all this stuff at them, get them in the truck and tell them that's unacceptable. You didn't run hard. You didn't throw the ball straight. And we just, we don't do it that way. So with, with creativity. So you're right. We don't allow them to create on the baseball field. And I think that drives a lot of kids away from the game. Yeah. I mean, so many good nuggets there. Curiosity, self-guided learning. I mean, I, that's a whole nother podcast. We can, 
we can do that. We can schedule that one up for, for another time. I mean, and just for the record, Jeff, I think you're over there. Uh, <laughs> Jeff's got one of those too. Uh, his, his kid's obsessed with drawing sneakers and uh, nice. those have gotten, you know, just from what Jeff shared with me a lot better just in the past couple of months. Yeah, no, he's uh, it's funny. He's, he's eight as well. And uh, he's an incredible artist. He certainly doesn't get it from me, uh, probably from my yeah. wife. Um, but like, he's super creative and it's funny that you bring that up because um, like this summer I, I work from home. So I'm, I'm home with the kids during the summer. It's one of the benefits of my job. And um, you know, like just the way that they handle their mornings is very different, like between my three kids and my youngest, like, he watches youtube videos he's got guys that he watches and he'll look up like how to draw a character and then he had a really fun experience with baseball this year um and i think like the fact that like my job i get to go to a lot of minor league games he gets to go to minor league games you know he gets to talk to players you know i'm around the cape cod league he got to go to the katuit camps and then hang out with the players after the camp because i was working there all day like so it transitioned to him drawing superheroes. So now he draws pictures of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Fernando Tatis Jr. He's into juniors. He likes juniors a lot. Um, and like the same thing with basketball. And it was funny because like you were talking about your son and and um, you know what he did as a catcher, like in a little league game. My eight year old loves sports. Like so, it's not just baseball; it's basketball too. And I would I would say that's the one that he's uh, he's very tall. He's quick. You know, he's athletic um he watches basketball highlights because there's so many of those videos on youtube he watches basketball highlights i mean dating back to like he started talking to me about patrick ewing a mm-hmm. while back and i'm like you're eight man how do you know who the hell patrick ewing is of all players but he goes out and he practices every day so like if it's not raining it's been raining the last two days but i'll, I'll take the air blower out there because i live in new england so there's leaves all over the place right now i'll clean the driveway for him he'll go out there for an hour and 20 minutes and i mean like He's practicing, dribbling, all different stuff. Um, I don't give him too many directions other than to tell him every so often, dribble with his left hand exclusively for a little bit. Um, he's got like a Euro step. He's doing stuff that like, I, I like, well, how are you eight years old and you have a Euro step? You know, like when you know naturally to do that going to the basket, it's because he's watched so many videos of all these different players and all the different styles that he picks up different things and then goes out in the driveway and tries them out, you know? Um, and that's his own passion. That's because like, I don't, I'm not critical of him, you know, at all, like ever, like, it's always good job. Great job. That was awesome. You know, like we get, like we play touch football, we come back from a touch football game and it's like, Hey, you know, it was a great block you, you made today or, you know, great flag rip. Like, it's just, I always try to be really positive. And I think you're right. I think that drives them to then have interest just in the topic because they they have some self-worth worth in it. They feel as if like, all right, like I feel better when I do this because it's something that I think I do well, right? Um, oh, I, so, I, so I don't want to go too far. I don't know how much time y'all got. We can just keep going. <laughs> but it's funny what you just said. And I wrote it down as you were talking right there as, as words of advice to all parents um, that I started trying. And I've talked to my dad about it when he talks to my son. I've talked to my wife about it. Um, and I read it in a book. I do 75 hard, right? I, I love it. It, get, it keeps me organized and it makes me read. Yeah. So I read it in a book. It's called Coaching Athletes to Be Their Best. And 
the thing that I took most from that book, I think, is this quote right here is when you're there's a difference between um, praise and affirmation, right? There's a difference between praise and affirmation. And when we're coaching these kids, whether it's basketball or baseball or art, it doesn't matter. Teaching them the difference, not telling them, but showing them the difference between praise and affirmation, I think is huge in the growth standpoint, right? Like, and what is the difference between praise and affirmation? Praise is when your kid is doing those dribbling things and does the Euro steps and does nothing but net. You say things like, man, you're so good, dude. Like, that is freaking awesome, man. Like, I can't believe you did that, man. Like, you're good. Or when your kid has a, you know, a three for three game, like, hey, man, you were the best player out there today, man. That was awesome. You did really good. When you, when you, when you coach that way in praise, right? Like, you're teaching that kid to play for praise. And so, as we all know, when these things get harder and they become varsity baseball players and they go over three or they have a real slump, right, of a, of a bad three weeks of baseball or it can happen at 14 or 15, we call this burnout, right? Like the kid quits playing because he's burned out. He's not burned out. He went through a hard time and he stopped getting what he played for. And that was the praise, right? Like that was the praise. He was playing for the praise. The praise made him feel warranted. The, feel, the praise made him feel loved. It made him feel wanted. And the moment that, it's, that that failure happened and the praise stopped, he didn't know what to do. So you said that. You said that at the very end about you should be proud of yourself. And, dude, I use that saying more to my kids now than I ever have because mm-hmm. what that teaches them is, it teaches them that their work that they did up to that point allowed them to do what they did, right? So now the value is in the work that they did to do that. And the value is then how they felt when they achieved that, right? So that's awesome that you, that you, I don't know if anyone's ever explained it that way to you or that you even knew that you were doing that, but that's huge. So when my kids make good grades, it's dude, you should be really, I never say I'm proud. I never say it. I say, you should be proud of yourself, man. Like you studied for that test. You worked your butt off and you made a good grade. You did that. You should be really proud. And that will drive up self-worth more than anything because they start to identify the hard work with the accomplishment equals feel good. So if they want accomplish, if they want feel good, they need accomplishment. And if you want accomplishment, it takes hard work. So man, that was awesome because this is this is everything that like this is all just like right right in my swing zone, right? So you're over here talking about praise affirmation, Carol Dweck, cultivating a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. Um I've got a close family member who I don't think listens to this podcast, so I think I'm safe here, but even if they do, uh they can they can listen to this and hopefully they they view it as, you know, like a a good example of this and not as, you know, criticism or anything, cause it's not meant to be that way, but, uh, they were growing up and straight A's was rewarded with, you know, a little bit of cash, right? Elementary school, middle school, high school, right? Graduated top of her class in high school, like top five kids in the class goes to Holy cross, which people in the Northeast know that Holy cross is not an easy school to get into small liberal arts school. Um, very small enrollment. She was top 10 in her class at Holy Cross when she graduated. She went to Holy Cross pre-med in her first semester of college. 
she took like a, it was either a chemistry or biology class. that was really hard. And I think she got like a B minus in the class and she like short circuited. She like couldn't handle it that, that she didn't get an A. So she switched off the pre-med track to sociology. And then she obviously went on and she was, you know, top 10 in her class at Holy Cross. And then she went on to a master's degree from an Ivy league school. And she's just one of the most book smart human beings that I've ever met in my entire life. Um, but could not handle the first time that she, she got a B. She just couldn't handle it. And I, I literally, when I read the Carol Dweck book, fixed mindset, growth mindset, I looked at that and I was like, Oh my gosh, like all these years of like chasing this carrot of straight A's so that we could get a little bit of cash was like rewarding the A. And I had a moment when I was in college where I was like, A or B doesn't matter. I'd rather go to a class that's hard, that challenges me, that that gets me going, that makes me want to show up and get a B than go to a class that I know that I'm going to get an A because the professor is an easy grade or whatever, and I can just sleepwalk through it. Anyway, besides the point, I do want to throw my two pennies in on uh, your daughter and Jeff's son um, looking up videos on how to get better at things. That is, I'm a huge believer in life transfers. And I think a lot of time we talk about it in, in the context of athleticism and, and athlete development, but like personal development, the fact that they learn that like, Hey, if I want to advance in whatever it is, if it's a sport, if it's, you know, art, whatever it is, those are things that are life transfers that when they become adults, they're going to encounter something in their life. Like we all do that they've never seen before. And they're going to have a process from when they were younger on something as silly as like learning a Euro step or, you know, figuring out how to do some shading on, on a, on a drawing that they're going to be able to apply to whatever that situation is like, Hey, like the garbage disposal is clogged. What do I do? A lot of people just pick up the phone and call the plumber, but people who have that process of like, okay, like I'm going to figure this out for myself. They go to YouTube and they're like, okay, is this something I can do myself? And they figure it out. Life skills, right? So like props to both you guys for having an environment in your household that cultivates that self-guided learning and that curiosity and that figuring it out for yourself. Because that's, I mean, I think that's what parenting is all about. Setting yourself up or setting your kids up to be able to go be independent and figure things out for themselves in the real world. For they're sure. well on their way. For sure. Appreciate that, Matt. Yeah. What do you say? Uh, we're going to try this in the moment out or not a second wasted at 125. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's easy to think that like we think we went off tangents here, but I, but I really don't think it is, man. I think, I think this all, this all fits in the bucket of, of developing kids, right? Like, and not giving up on them because they can't color at four, right? And not giving up on them because, they're not the best hitter at nine and not giving up on them because they can't run faster at 10 and not giving up on people. Right. And teaching them praise versus affirmation, teaching them that you don't have to be the best at 12 to be the best at 17. So I think anybody who listens to this can listen to all those things. And I think, I think y'all, y'all nailed it, man, on, on what this, what this episode was about. Yeah. And for anybody who's still listening at this point, tap yourself on the shoulder 
or uh, give yourself a little pat on the back, however you want to celebrate. You should be proud of yourself. Yeah, you should be proud of yourself. This entire episode. Yeah, zero zero arrogance here. This was this is the podcast of the year. Oh yeah. man, I appreciate that. Yeah. Hey, but I, before before y'all let me go, man, I was I was upset with one thing, man. Y'all didn't ask me y'all's uh y'all's first question that y'all ask everybody. Yeah, Matt. I was like, I was assuming you were going to jump right in with your with your sandwich question, but you didn't. Was this? A I know. I came. I came in cold. Yeah. Cool. I was trying not to say Capriati's for an episode, but here we yeah. are. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Pierce. Capriati's, James Jonathan's, Jersey Michael's, Subway. So I mean, them rank them. I don't know the first two, right? Like I, I don't even know if they're down here. So, but Subway, Subway ain't it for me. Like mm. I know they changed their model where where it's a. Uh, it's, they don't cut it and leave it outside all day anymore. I, I think they cut it live now, but I, I'm out. Um, so it was cut at a plant, huh? and they shipped it cut. They they shipped all that meat pre-cut previously. Yeah, I'm out, man. I'm out. Like, oh. I've been sitting out since 7 a.m., dude. I'm good. Like, um, But, you know, I, I live in Texas, man, so, like, sandwich places aren't really my thing. Um, mm. There's a couple. There's a couple that I'll put on the list. But it's not going to be my number one. I'll, I'll give you my number one in a minute. But I'm a huge fan of nukes. Like, I don't know if y'all have nukes. It's I've it's, got one walking distance from me. I've never been. I've nukes, never heard of it. Nukes is good, man. I mean, uh, it's, it's a break off from McAllister's. It was started at Ole Miss. My buddy Robbins talks about it all the time. Like, nukes is, nukes is good. Um, there's another mom and pop place in San Marcos, if you ever find you there, called Alvin Ord's. Like, I'll... I'll swear by their sandwich, but, but if I'm going, if I'm going like sandwich style, man, I'm going to Whataburger, dude. Like we're going to Whataburger and we're getting a number one. And that's with a, with a, with a tea, a Whataburger with a tea and not unsweet tea, not sweet tea, but tea. We're going, that's where we're going. Uh, this is like another culture to me, man. I, I didn't, I don't know any of those places. I know what Whataburger, Whataburger is. I've never had it. He just yeah. threw me for an absolute loop in a sandwich conversation. He pulls Matt, out a burger. Matt is never is a Matt burger is, sandwich. Matt's, <laughs> Matt's Matt's so used to the standard answers and being rewarded with money at the end of each episode that he couldn't. It's the he beef, couldn't, man. He couldn't beef process a burger world, being man. put into the sandwich conversation. Is it it's, a it's, sandwich? It's it's the it's the beef capital of the world, man. We don't eat we don't eat ham and turkey sandwiches, man. We eat <laughs> <laughs> come and take it. Come and take come it. Come and take it, man. That's what we do, man. So there you go. I, mean, I was waiting for that out out the gate, man. You didn't give it to me, so I had to, I had to give it to you at the end. Well, I appreciate you keeping us honest because that is a staple yeah. of every episode. Absolutely, man. That proves I listen. Yeah, it does. That's uh. That's uh, that's high praise. I appreciate that. Well, uh, absolutely, man, absolutely. I want to thank Matt Pierce for joining us, Coach Matt Pierce. You can follow him at Twitter at TX Pierce, and that's like Paul Pierce, not Steve Pierce. That is a P I E R C E. He is indeed the truth as well. Thank you. After the end of a good fight. Deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know the bigger the fight, 
better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. 